0: A few have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to Philippians chapter 1, or if you're like me, the Bible you carry is your smartphone app, uh, so you can take out your smartphones and open it, or even get out your worship guide. It'll probably be easier as we sort of work our way through this text, if you have it in front of you, to follow along, and we're going to dive right in because there is so much good stuff in here uh, that Paul has for us for more, this morning, and there's also so much uh, good stuff that we've kind of got to get after it uh, here a little bit. When I was uh, a little kid, my parents, I don't know why, they let me watch Smokey and the Bandit um, as like an eight year old. And I watched it a hundred times, I knew every line. And so uh, the line that's coming to me now is we got a long way to go and a short time to get there. you know, eastbound, just watch old bandit run. Um, and I guess that makes me the bandit in this scenario, which is maybe not the best terminology for a preacher, but, uh, but we'll go with it. So we're in this series, The Giant Secret of Joy. And I'm so glad that we are because I need this joy. We all need the joy. All of us need a little more joy in our lives. And the world is desperately seeking joy. But like so many things, it is offering, and we are settling for a counterfeit. What we want in our lives, what we seek is love and intimacy, and we settle for desirability and sex. What we seek, what we want is contentment in our lives, and what we settle for often is the pursuit of success or achievement. And what we seek, what we want, what we know we need is joy. And what we settle for is happy. There's nothing wrong with happy. It's not a bad thing to be happy. You can roll your windows down and crank the music to happy, right? Clap along if you feel like a room without a roof because we're happy. I mean, there's music for it specifically, right? I mean, we've got it. But the problem with happy is that it's circumstantial, as long as there's money in the bank account or those windows are down and the music is cranking as I'm on my way to pick up the pretty girl for the date, well then I'm happy. But the problem is in this world, in this life, circumstances don't cooperate. We live in a fallen world and it's not long before we face death and loss betrayal, before we are sinned against or before we sin against someone, and happy seems to disappear during that time. And so we need something deeper. The Bible speaks of something deeper, something richer than happy. The writer of Hebrews says about Jesus, talking about Jesus, that it was for the joy set before Him that He endured the cross. Nothing circumstantial about that. And in our context, we find Paul sitting in a Philippian prison, I'm sorry, in a Roman prison writing to the Philippians chained to the guard. And in this moment, the the, the situation is kind of getting to him. He's pondering very much the outcome of this incarceration. In Rome, long-term imprisonment wasn't a punishment. You just simply were in prison while you awaited your punishment. And Paul is in Rome as an enemy of the state. He's there for a capital offense. And so his punishment would be death. And he's pondering that outcome, whether he will die or be set free. And we know this isn't a hypothetical pondering. Eventually, later in Paul's life, he is killed by the state. As a Roman citizen, he doesn't have to undergo crucifixion, but they march him outside the gates and they behead him. For exactly the reason that he is in prison now. And so he's not hypothetically pondering what's going to happen here. He is wrestling with what is the outcome here. And amazingly, as he turns to ponder that in sort of his Hamlet to be or not to be kind of soliloquy, he opens it with, and again, I say rejoice. He goes to joy. Paul clearly has tapped into something deep, something that we need, something that we all seek. Dallas Willard said that joy is a pervasive and constant sense of well-being. We need that, don't we? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, actually, uh, who was a man that, that experienced the exact same situation as Paul, he said, the joy of God has been through the poverty of the crib and the distress of the cross. Therefore, it is insufferable, meaning it can't be overcome, irrefutable. It does not deny the distress where it is, but finds God in the midst of it. Indeed, precisely there. It does not contest the most grievous sin, but finds forgiveness in just this way. It looks death in the face, yet finds life in death itself. I don't know about you, but I need that kind of joy. I need that in my life. I get thrown and rattled when the Wi-Fi won't load fast enough. I'm on my way to the grocery store where I can just go in and pick an abundance of food and I hit traffic and go, you know, what's going on? I need to find this deep, deeper than circumstances kind of joy. And so Paul has got an important thing to say to me and to say to us this morning. And so we're going to dive, dive right in. The first thing that we can see, Paul gives us actually in this text, two things that we can see from his example, and then he gives us an epic exhortation. So two examples and an exhortation that we can pick up. And the first thing that we see in order to find this kind of deep beyond circumstantial joy that we want in our lives is that we've got to surrender our identity to Christ. Look at verse 21. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Kind of sounds like a catchphrase, doesn't it? It's got that catchphrase vibe to it. It's definitely a coffee mug kind of statement. Actually Paul meant it that way. In the Greek, there's a really cool thing that Paul is doing right here. The Greek for what he's saying is tuzen Christos. There was actually an expression in Roman culture at the time that was tus in Christos and roughly translated it meant life is good. Life is good. And it was just a common cliched phrase. How you doing? Life is good. How you doing? Tuzen Christos. And Paul takes that phrase and he spins it in a very cool way and he substitutes Christos with Christos. Life is Christ. Life is Christ. And then the very next phrase, the part of there, that, that gain word is kardos, Christos, kardos, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul had figured out that the essence, essential aspect of his identity, even as he faced death in this moment was Christ. He had fully surrendered his identity and we have to do the same thing if we're going to find joy. Easy to say, hard to do. So how is it that we do that in our lives? Well, the typical way that we think about our life is a little bit like a, uh, you could diagram it like a pie chart. I actually uh, drew up this uh, chart for you to see, and I didn't draw that. Um, I drew it up and then Dee Dee took it and made it look legible, because um, mine did not look legible. But the, the typical way that we, we focus or, or arrange or think about our life is kind of like this pie chart. And part of our goal is if I can just get the right slices on the pie, and I can get them in the just right balance, then all of a sudden I will find this thing I'm looking for. I will find this joy. And the challenge that we run into is that as we try to make space, well, when I need more uh, time for work, well, then I push into that slice of pie maybe for family or, or uh, my friends or hobbies. If I'm, if I'm looking for some more me time, you know, just to kind of recreation and relax, I try to expand that and it eats into uh, the times maybe that I'm focused on my relationships at church or with my faith and we move and stretch and we can't quite get it to come into balance ever. It won't quite cooperate, will it? And if we're really honest, I put that me in the center because what we really hope will happen is after we pay all the dues that each of those things uh, demand of us, as we meet the demands of all those areas, our hope is that there'll be a little bit left over for ourselves. C.S. Lewis says that we're like a rich man, I mean like a good man paying taxes. Sure we pay our taxes, but we hope that we'll have a little left over for ourselves. And the problem is that leaves us perpetually frustrated. It doesn't work out. And and Jesus calls us actually to something different. He calls us to die to ourselves. C.S. Lewis goes on in that thing to say that the Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there or a slice of pie here, a slice of pie there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think um, wicked. The whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you my own self. My own will shall become yours. So the way that that would get worked out in life, what Lewis is documenting would look a little bit like this other chart that I, that I drew up It's kind of this bar chart. The idea here is that at the foundation, finding this other, at the foundation of our identity becomes that we are a disciple of Christ. And out of that flows all of the activity of our lives, family, work, friends, hobbies, whatever it is. Jesus. Paul said earlier uh, in in Colossians that whatever I do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the idea. This is what it means to surrender our identity. This means to parent is Christ, to husband is Christ, To, to architect is Christ, to teach is Christ. Everything, whatever you do, whether word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or as Paul says here, to live is Christ. How about that for a first point this morning? Coffee hadn't even hit your system fully yet, you're not all the way awake in spite of the extra hour that you have, and you come in and I'm telling you, you gotta die to self if you want the joy. Good morning, right? There it is, that's what Paul lays out for us. Christos, to live is Christ, life is Christ. And the next thing that we see right here from Paul's example is that we've got to clarify our purpose. In verse 22, Paul says, but if I am to live, and here's what I want you to watch in this. How is it that Paul decides whether it's better that he live or it's better uh, than be set free or it's better that he die? Listen, how is it that Paul makes that decision? He's going to tell us in here. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. Let me just note, he's using a rhetorical device here. He's not in charge, uh, but he's just, he's using it as a way to, to ponder the two. I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, watch, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud, co- proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Did you spot that? It's actually for him to go on and die would be the better thing. It would move him closer to Christ, he would be with Christ closer in that next life, but it's their progress and joy that is motivating him here. His purpose is clear. Pastor Joel has taught us here for years and years, if the goal of your life while you're here was simply to grow closer to God, God would take your life when you gave it to Him because you would be closer to God in heaven than you are here. But you're still here, which means your life has a purpose. You guys remember that? Yeah. Paul is demonstrating that right here. He's saying, yeah, part of me really wants to go on and be with Christ. That would be better. I'm going to be closer to Christ in the next life than this one. But I've got a purpose and I'm clear on that purpose. And that is your progress and joy. And he's living out of that purpose and he's finding the joy that we seek. When I was early, first time I started working for a church, I was in ordination training as a part of this church. And as part of that, I had to do hospital visits and, uh, and rotation every week. And in spite of the, the very burly uh, manly man that you see in front of you, uh, when I was 20, I got a little bit squeamish around just blood and medical things. And uh, even when I say it, I start to get, I might not, I might still struggle with it a little bit. I have to be careful as I tell the story because I get a little lightheaded even as I talk about it. But um, I remember then the first time that I was assigned uh, to this particular uh, cancer wing of a hospital. I knew I was gonna go visit with terminally ill patients. Uh, And I was so nervous. My prayer going in was a very holy prayer. Uh, God, don't let me pass out or throw up. It's just my, my pure goal, like don't let me pass out or throw up. You know, nothing would be more encouraging to have the minister show up and then just like, you know, and you'd be like, oh, great, you know. Uh, and so, and so I, I, I walked in and I was, I was doing the business and I saw that first up with this lady named Frida and I checked to make sure I had the, the right room number. And then uh, in confession, I sort of peeked in real quick to see what I was dealing with and step back out um, just to make sure. And sure enough, in my peek, I saw that she was gravely ill. Uh, She was gravely ill and very, uh, it was evident physically, and so I prayed my prayer, God just, okay, you know, and I I walked in and I sat down, and I discovered something really extraordinary. Frida was an amazing woman. There was just a buoyancy about her in spite of her condition. She was a German immigrant uh, that had come over and she had lived in the United States uh, in Kentucky. And with my Kentucky accent and her German accent, we barely understood each other, but we were, we were talking to each other and having this conversation and it just, I was trying to figure out what was going on because just the buoyancy sort of uh, didn't match the situation that I was looking at. And so I got up the courage to ask her, so Frida, so, So what's the, what are the, what are the odds that the doctors are giving you? And she said, oh, 10%. I said, ah, I'm so sorry. And I'll never forget what she said back to me. She said, oh, you don't get it. God asks for 10% of our money and look at the amazing things he does with that. I'll give him my last 10% and I'm sure he'll do something good. Change my life. I live, yeah, absolutely. You could see it in the way that she interacted with the nurses. You could see it with the way she interacted with the doctors. I actually volunteered and signed up for Frida every week until she passed. I wanted to be around this person, and I like to think still today I am a part of her 10%. You see, Frida had figured out, she understood the purpose of her life, even with that last 10% facing death, she understood that there was a reason she was there, and that was to serve others in Christ's name. It was my progress and joy that Frida was interested in. And for us to capture the the kind of joy that we see in Paul, that is going to have to define our lives. We have to clarify our purpose. Jesus, in in, uh, the Gospel of John, refers to Himself as being sent 40 times, and in His final conclusion toward the end, He said, as God has sent me, I now send you. you understand what's happening there? The church doesn't have a mission. The mission of God has a church. And we have the opportunity and the privilege and the responsibility to live out that mission to go and serve and advance the kingdom of God and the progress and joy of those that we come in contact with. And so we've got to begin to understand and remember, clarify our purpose. And the third thing that we see from Paul here is that we've got to transfer our citizenship. In verse 27, he says, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel." This opening line is so cool. Paul does this really cool thing in verse 27. This phrase right here, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It almost can't even be translated well into English. Some translators write, conduct yourselves. Some put, live a life worthy. Uh, others put, uh, uh, let your public conduct. The word here that Paul has used is polytuamai. Polytuomai, which is a fun word to say once you get it down. Uh, and And what it literally means is to be a citizen of. To be a citizen of, what he's, what he's calling this idea to conduct yourselves, it's, it's be a citizen of, in kind of a plural sense, the Gospel. Now remember who he's writing in Philippi, they are a Roman colony, right? They take huge pride in their Roman citizenship. It's a major point, not far uh, from this colony is the inscription uh, that we found later, the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world. Does that sound like familiar language? Rome felt like it was good news for the world and that the god Augustus was the one who would bring that in. All around was propaganda, Caesar is Lord. That was the expression, sound like familiar expression? And Paul steps into that pride of citizenship that they have, that they believe that they are the good news for the world and that Caesar, and he says, no, there is something deeper, not metaphorical, but actual Jesus is Lord. He says, your citizenship is in heaven. He's going to go on to say that in in, uh, chapter three, be citizens of heaven. And in Polytuamai, he's calling us to transfer our citizenship and remember that we are deeper citizenship, that our pride comes because Jesus is Lord. If he was writing to the United States, he might say something like, only Jesus can say. It is Jesus who says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Or he might say, it is the one that we worship who spoke the stars into being and took the stripes on his back for our salvation. He's, he's tapping into their pride and he's saying, but it's deeper than that. It's deeper. I, and I can't even overestimate the social, social and political dimension of what he's talking about here. Stanley Hauerwas, the the theologian, says the church is a colony. An island of one culture in the middle of another. In baptism our citizenship is transferred from one dominion to another and we become in whatever culture we find ourselves resident aliens. That's the idea Paul's capturing here. Be citizens of the gospel as your primary allegiance. So how do we do that? Well he tells us we're going to do it in community. Again, it's got this social dimension. Look what he says later. We read that again. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's not something we can do by ourselves. He says this is something that we do together. We live out this citizenship together. This past week I, I heard the news story from earlier in the summer. You guys might have already heard it of uh, the two boys that were over in, uh, in the Gulf Coast um, Uh, I can't remember the place, but they were over in the Gulf Coast. They were swimming in the ocean uh, and they got caught in a rip current. They got pulled out to to sea and the, the mom saw them, you know, heard them yelling. And so she went in to get them and she got pulled out to sea. And so then the grandmother who was there with them, she went in to get them and she got pulled out to sea. And several other folks went in trying to save them and bring them back in and they got pulled out to sea. All told, there were nine people out in the sea caught in this rip current. And as the people on the beach began to figure that out, all of a sudden somebody had the idea. They started to form a human chain. They linked up, they linked arms and starting on the beach, they worked their way. 80 people linked arms and stretched out and brought all nine of those people back in from the rip current back to the beach. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Amazing. I can't imagine a better picture of the church than that. Anchored on the shore, on the surety of the shore, reaching out arm and arm, linked, standing firm or swimming firm, as in uh, when when the waters get deep, linked together, reaching out into the rip current of the world and coming back in, never forgetting that we are beach people, not sea people. Right? We are beach people. We are not sea people. We are built on the rock. We are on the foundation, not caught out into the current. And for us to find the joy that we seek, to find what we're looking for, we've got to recognize that. We've got to transfer our citizenship from this world to the kingdom of God. And the final point that I want you to see today isn't really even a new point. I want you to see actually the way that all three of the things we've just been talking about work together. It's actually a holistic system here that allows us to live a life shaped by the gospel. It's not just a list, a random list of three things that we got to remember or try to put into practice. They actually work together. I did another little diagram, I was diagram focused this week, but that you can see it. So our identity begins to shape our purpose. Our purpose shapes our community. Our purpose and community begin to shape our identity. They actually work together as a system. When Mandy and I, just right over our our kitchen sink, we have this uh, sign that kind of represents what happens at the farm. It says, farm fresh milk and eggs. And we love that. We decided, yes, that's what we want. We want farm fresh milk and eggs. So we got goats and chickens, right? And we were ready. I pretty quickly figured out that goats are not a milk vending machine right like you just don't go put a coin in the goats mouth and then get a glass of milk for breakfast that's not how it works right there's a whole process what I started to learn though is that the process works together all this manure that I spend every day shoveling and getting out of the way and taking care of it actually enhances the soil As that soil is enhanced, the health of the soil increases, the amount of forage and the vegetables that we can go grow increases. That's what we eat. It increases the quality and the health of the animals. It makes those animals better able to, to give birth and have babies. Farmer fun fact, by the way, if you want milk, you have to have babies. Right. It's just how it works. I get people ask me that question all the time. Like, so your goats and milk yet? I'm like, well, they haven't had babies. Why do they need babies? Well, because they're mammals. Like you got to have a baby to have milk as part of the process, part of the system that we're talking about here, you know? And so anyways, they get older uh, and, and that gives them the health that they have to have the babies. And then we raise and care for those babies. The chickens actually are a part of the equation. They come in and they scratch and they clean up any of the, the, the uh, extra feed that is wasted. And the whole system works together. What we realize is that a farm isn't just made of organisms. It is an organism that Mandy and I are a part of. We step into this system and only when we tend to the whole system actually do we get the fruit that we're looking for, the milk and the eggs. The milk and the eggs are a function of the health of the overall system. Do you see that's how it works as we begin to just begin to surrender our identity as we come to understand our purpose and as we recognize our citizenship and live that out in community, actually that is when the fruit comes to bear. Christianity is not, also not a vending machine. We don't put the coin in the slot, which in this case would be the salvation prayer and then put our cup up and just wait for big sips of joy. That's not how it works. We enter into the system, what organizes our life around the cross and around the work that Jesus has done. And the result as we step into that is the fruit is born. And the fruit nourishes us, it nourishes those that are around us, and it gives us the ability to in turn return that praise back to God. And so my hope for us as a community is that we will do that, that we will step into our identity. And we will step into our purpose and we will live that out in community in such a way that the world around us is receiving the fruit that is born in our lives. If we do that, it'll change our lives and we will find the joy that we seek and so desperately need. We pray with you. God, you are a good God. And you are extremely good to us. And we acknowledge, we confess right here before you that we tend to be so selfish. We are so focused on ourselves, on the outcomes that we are looking for, on the things of our lives that we most want. And so we come here this morning early looking for your grace looking for your love. And we ask that in that grace and love that you would give us the confidence to surrender our lives to you. That we would trust you for all things in our lives. And in doing so, we would step into the identity and purpose and community that you have designed for us. God, you who spoke heaven and earth into being, who breathed them, into being. You put the breath in our lungs. May we receive that life that comes from you and may we in turn use that breath to return praise back to you. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.